Welcome to the SNAP Podcast, a space where we give entrepreneurs, change makers, and youth leaders a platform to share their journeys both in business and in their personal evolution. Welcome to episode four of our Snipped podcast. And today we're chatting to the CEO of Makers Valley, um, Toby Lechitzenden. Hi, Toby Le, how are you? I'm good. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you so much for the opportunity to chat to you. We are super excited to hear about Toby Le and who, she's, who she is and what she's all about. Yay. Cool. So um, please tell me a bit more about Makers Valley. What is Makers Valley and... Yeah, what is your role there? Cool. So yeah, Makers Valley is a community and it's an area in the east of Johannesburg. So literally on the eastern outskirts of Johannesburg CBD. And it makes up of suburbs known as Troyville, Bears Valley, Bertram's, Judith's Park, Lorenzville. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. Yep, I am. Okay. <laughs> so it's very close to Eastgate, but that area specifically, I mean, it's very close to Yeovil as well, has been known for being really impoverished. It's right next door to the Ellis Park mm. precinct. Um, but it's also such a beautiful and diverse community. It's a center for migration. So you find all nationalities there of Africa. It's it's so cool. Dope. So you find, yeah, Mozambicans, Ghanaians, mm-hmm. Zimbabweans, Malawians, all in this little hub. And I think that's what makes it special. And you okay. also find a variety of races. So there was a demographic of previous, yeah, it's, it was a previously white area. Okay. And some of that demographic have remained um, in that area. And then obviously a whole bunch of new races are in there. So it's <laughs> white, black, colored, Indian. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it as, as amazing as well. Like my mom will walk through those streets and she's so shocked because she doesn't actually realize. She said her words were, I didn't know that you get impoverished white people sure and it was shocking for her and what's beautiful is though the kids like chilling together chilling on those pavements together speaking vernacular together all different races getting together and understanding one another Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a community and I think in about 2018 there was a guy that started the Makers Valley Partnership his name is Simon Caesar Mason and he was doing his doctorate in a concept called a well-being economy so Mm -hmm. it's an economy where people and planet are as important as profit. And so instead of just measuring GDP, what are other things that we can measure in our society? And is GDP a measurement of our well-being or hmm. the other things that we should actually be measuring in our society? Yeah, so yeah. I'm not an academic. He is definitely. <laughs> and he was doing his doctorate in this. And at the same time, there's a development there called the Victoria Yards Development. Okay. And it's run by a man called Brian Green. He started, I don't know if you know, 44 Stanley, which is on the other side of Joburg, on the west side. Mm-hmm. But um, 44 Stanley was really like a creative, artisanal hub of different studios and um, makers and craftsmen selling their products. Mm. So that's 44 Stanley and a very similar vision is Victoria Yards. But I would say the area is obviously very different to the area in 44 Stanley. It's much more impoverished. And what's interesting is that Nando's head office is also right there. Mm. So these two big 
kind of stakeholders or yeah. developments <laughs> in this real you would never expect to find anything there any investment in that area mm. because of the way it is and so those two stakeholders just added some dynamic and there was potential for more and so Brian Green very commercially minded said listen I, I understand we're in this hectic environment there's no way that we can have a development here and not think about the surrounding community mm. and there's this big <clears throat> concept called gentrification and it's really really you know it's something that happened a little bit in Maboneng is that Maboneng was such an exciting development I don't know you know Maboneng yes I yeah. do definitely <laughs> so super exciting the inner city being redeveloped all these investors came in, but unfortunately, the people that originally lived there mm-hmm. ended up being displaced because that area just got so developed and so exciting and sure. the property prices um, obviously increased. increased. Yeah. And so, and yeah, also the property developers just bought the buildings and regenerated them. So we wanted to think about how do we think about gentrification in a way that makes sense but also doesn't displace people Mm. because nobody wants to live in an area that is falling apart. So that aspect of gentrification of uplifting and improving a community is so important to everyone as impoverished people. You want that to happen in your community, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it doesn't help if you end up being displaced and moved out of that community. So how do you do that? And it's a, it's, we don't have it cracked (laughs) to be honest, (laughs) but it's something that Mm -hmm. we are really always thinking about. And the, way that we see that happening is by making sure the community is involved in as much as possible that their voices are represented in everything that happens in this community and so Simon doing his doctorate in this space as well-being economy how do people and planets make sure yeah, they recognize as much as profit because we're not saying that there's no need for profit. We know yes. that it's really important to be sustainable. Um, but how do all those three work together? And so that's where Makers Valley Partnership was born. It was initially an, a movement to say, hey, we want to think about this community in a different way. Let's first start with making a vision and a name. So that's where the name came from. It was through community workshops, engaging with the community, saying, what do we want to call ourselves, this area that we've demarcated? Um, So it's a community of makers. It does have a really creative background and history, but at the same time, we literally locate it in a valley. So the Yuxke River Mm. runs between us. And so this concept of making, but also change making in our community um, was kind of yeah brought to fruition. So that's where the name comes from, Makers Dope. Valley. It was through all these people coming together. And then mm-hmm. it was a movement, but only last year in 2020 did we register as a nonprofit company. Cool. And Makers Valley Partnership is kind of the backbone organization that makes sure all these stakeholders connect and speak and uh, collaborate mm-hmm. on improving the community. That is so dope. Dope, dope, dope. <laughs> All right, so where did it all start for you? Like um, going into your career, where did it all yeah. start? Why, when did you decide that, okay, fine, this is what I want to do? And have you always seen yourself as somebody that's going to be a CEO of, of such a big organization one day? Well, I mean, it's not the biggest organization. <laughs> it will be. It's a very I'm speaking it into existence. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. Um, but yeah, I think, ugh, I know it sounds cheesy, but I want to say like from the day I was born. <laughs> but it really is true. I think people's lives are shaped 
through their experiences and through things that happened throughout their lives yeah, and a lot um, happened throughout my life. I'll just tell you the quick version, but basically I was born in 1989. It was, you know, just like nearing towards the end of apartheid, but IFP and ANC and KZN, hmm. huge conflicts. My dad's family was ANC, but living in an IFP territory and mm-hmm. Ended up causing huge issues. Sure. <laughs> the family village was burnt down and my dad was looking for work and he knocked on a variety of houses in the suburbs of KZN near Westville. Mm. And the family that opened the doors, white family, um, became my family from that day. I was eight mm. months old. And that kind of was the stepping stone for me to realize like, these people that just took my family in where we didn't have a place to stay. Mm. I've had people like that throughout my life, that people that have invested in me, wanted to see me like improve. Mm -hmm. And that's always been something that I take to heart. Like I could have been in a, like a a village that had nothing. Um, But yeah, how do I do that for others? You know? So that's always been like at the core of me is that I've been so blessed and lucky and fortunate and people have invested in me. Everyone deserves that. Everyone deserves somebody bringing them up, supporting them, having that kind of network around them. And so every single thing that I've done in my life has been informed by that. So I studied marketing, Mm -hmm. well, did a diploma, but I always knew that there was something more in this marketing world, I realized that brands have so much influence. So I used to do, when I was young, danced for brands like on stage. And I just saw like, (laughs) like Fila, for example, or Mm -hmm. Nike, like the people just respond to brands in such an interesting way. They have so much power and say, and Mm -hmm. people emulate what they see a brand doing. And so when I started working for an organization called HDR Youth Marketeers, they did a lot with youth and I always said but brands can do more like just instead of just engaging with the youth how can they use their brand for purpose Mm. and how can they use that voice to make a difference in that youth's life and I went on this venture of then starting HDR for good and then working at TBWA's CSI and eventually just realizing that this is what I want to do. I want to work. I don't know what you call it, if it's CSI or purpose marketing or social, (laughs) social marketing, but I just knew that I wanted to be in this. Now I know it's called this concept of shared value where we know that everyone needs value added to their Mm -hmm. lives, but how do you find that sweet spot where society benefits, the brand benefits, the public organization benefits at the end of the day. Um, But yeah, it's also not as simple as it sounds. A lot of corporates just want to tick boxes. And (laughs) at the end of the day, it's about sales. And especially during this time, it's very, very difficult. So, you know, I'm not saying we we understand that concept. I'm busy doing a social entrepreneurship course at Gibbs as well. So I'm still like learning a little bit about this space. I'm actually doing it with your colleague. That's how I came onto the show. (laughs) And yeah, so it's just an interesting world and... I'm learning more as I go, but Mm -hmm. I just know that I'm driven to make a difference. But how can I do that in a sustainable way? I also have a family and kids to feed. So how do I also? (laughs) Okay. So how long were you at, you said HDI, 
right? Yeah. You were the founder, actually, right? No, no, uh, no, no. I was not the founder. Okay, because I read like in an article that you were one of the founders of HDI. So yeah, so HDI for good. So HDI was a youth marketing agency, uh-huh. and I that existed since like ninety something, ninety four. Okay. Mm-hmm. I only started there in about two thousand, two thousand and one. Okay. I had to study and work at the same time. I actually started in roadshows, so going mm-hmm. into schools. We went to like three thousand schools. If I, whatever brand like teaching kids how to mm-hmm. wash their hands with Dettol so I used to be the roadshow presenter <laughs> <laughs> and grew my way up in the company mm-hmm. started working for, for like Procter and Gamble and um yeah bigger brands and a lot especially with Procter and Gamble was beautiful because they had a lot of that kind of work inherently in them so with yes, always for example mm-hmm. it was about keeping girls in school how do we you know, give them puberty education for pampers who are going into government hospitals and giving moms access to mm-hmm. diapers, which are much needed, but at the same time, giving them vital, you know, breastfeeding education, for yes. example. And then for SAB, I did their curbing underage drinking <coughs> program. So going mm-hmm. into township and rural areas, working with schools and helping them come up with campaigns and programs around curbing underage drinking so that's kind of the work that I was involved in at HDI and during that time I said to my boss this is I love this kind of work but I want it to be more like explicit that it's these brands that are making a difference mm-hmm. um, and so HDI for good was born and so I was the founder of HDI for good oh, but everyone yes. just adds a little <laughs> yeah. hashtag for good on me yes <laughs> But it was its own separate registered okay. non-profit, yeah. And mm-hmm. so I was, I was the founder, the founder for, okay. of that. Yeah. All right, so it makes sense. So then you've got quite the record, hey? And how old are you now? If you don't mind me <laughs> asking. I'm 32. <laughs> 32. Yeah. You have quite the record for somebody who's 32. So um, I know a lot of people will probably wonder, like, how? How did you do all of this? Did you, like, get... How important would you say mentorship is in, in sort of like this field or in this career? Do you think that people can just do this whole thing on their own? What, what, how did you do it? Yeah, sure. I don't know. <laughs> I do. I think mentorship is so, so important. But I also think, you know, this thing of taking a chance on people, mm-hmm. I really believe that that's crucial. Because not everyone is going to be like, fits all the, the tick boxes that yes. you require yeah. for the mentorship program to take place or for you to, I mean, I, the positions that I've had, I've, I don't ever think I've been fully qualified for them. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've had all the years of experience or the degrees or the postgraduates or whatever it is that was needed. Mm-hmm. But people saw my determination, my drive and passion. And then they also took a risk. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important, especially with like youth development or empowerment, is that people can see, and that I think sets everyone apart from, you know, you believe in somebody that has belief in you. Mm-hmm. So if you are being mentored by somebody that you know is taking a chance on you, that you know is like, I'm going to take this step, this extra step yeah. to show you how much I believe in you. Yo, that just sets the whole thing like right. on a different trajectory yeah. because then you know, actually, I also want to, I also want to show this person that I'm so thankful and grateful and, and prove yourself. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think for me, you know, mentorship is important, but sometimes 
I feel like sometimes mentorship can just be an exercise that people do. Mm -hmm. They don't take it to heart. They don't really invest in that person. They don't say I'm here with you for like the long run and I'm going to walk side by side, you know? And so that for me is, I think is what's brought me to where I am. I think I've had such incredible people that have taken chances on me and Mm. sometimes I failed. I've Mm -hmm. gone through phases where I was like, yeah, I didn't have, because I didn't have... Like my mom couldn't afford university or whatever it was. And I started working from an early age. I went, I was like, oh, I'm earning my own money. I'm going to decide how I Mm -hmm. use this money, (laughs) you know. So I went through my phases of being an ordinary young person, figuring things out, partying too much. But at the same time, I realized, oh, my gosh, not everyone is afforded with this opportunity that I have. And how do I use that? And so... Yeah, the people that invest in me also shape me. They were also not scared to say, like my one boss <laughs> was hectic, and he, mm-hmm. you, you know, he would call me out if I was doing something um, that wasn't serving me. But you know that you know people can only say those things when they're really investing in you. Yeah. But if it's just like, hey, I'm doing this mentorship program with you, and it's kind of like you know, you don't have that intimate connection. Mm. It's very hard for people to actually really call you out or hold you accountable for things if they don't have an intimate connection. And I think that's important is that youth do make mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) Millennials, yeah, and Generation Z and whatever. You know, I don't think we we are perfect generation. We have amazing heart, but sometimes you also just need guidance. And yeah, so I think... That combination of like somebody really investing in you, but also being there to say, you can't do that. Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to go far if you do that. Like a little things like my boss saw that like I was in the presentation, couldn't see the board because I never got checked for glasses my whole life. Mm -hmm. So he was the one who's like, you girl, you can't see like you're (laughs) like 20 something years old. Yeah. But if it wasn't for me getting glasses, then he helped me get a driver's license. And I was like 24, 25. So I wasn't like somebody that just got a car and they matriculated Mm. and all those things. I was so blessed to have these people say, hey, my mom wasn't there to be able to do those things for me. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I love her to bits, but that's unfortunately the way that her circumstances kind of shaped her. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't for these, like, he was my boss, but at the same time taking the time to help me get my license, help me um, figure out how I'm going to get a car, get Mm -hmm. my glasses, (laughs) things like that, Mm -hmm. which I will never take for granted. Oh, that's sweet. Mm. All right. So um, what else is is Tobile interested in? I mean, besides, um, you know, you wanting to uplift communities and everything, what else do you do you like that people don't necessarily know what else are you interested in something something that people do know but it kind of ties into this is the importance of creativity um so during my work at tbwa and things like that i realized that um i was working with a guy called gordon cook and he started vegas school which is a creative tertiary institution Mm -hmm. and during my time there was a program called room 13 we were going into township schools and oh yeah i was actually gonna get into that one is it yeah oh okay so yeah Mm -hmm. but basically room 13 was an after-school program for kids that didn't have art at their schools Mm -hmm. and during that time we did research to say how many high schools 
um, have access to art education, any art subject or any creative subject. And only 6% of our South African public high schools, this was now 2017-18, so maybe it's changed since then. Yeah, <laughs> but that only 6% of our sure. public high schools have access to art Mm-hmm. Or any creative subject, and then if you go to the private schools, they have they have it That's all. Not, is it is it like besides arts and culture, or just like the arts and culture? Because you know we had arts and culture. Well, when I was in school, yeah, well, that was not that was so long ago. But arts and culture was like that one subject that yeah you had for art. That's all that you had. Yeah. So, so in primary school, it's it's a required subject, but in mm-hmm. high school, then you you're able yes. to choose your own subjects. Yeah. So grade eight and nine, I think it's still supposed to be, but it does. I mean, the thing is, these schools can't afford even your English teachers. So mm. art and creative subjects are always put at the back right? uh, burner. And so yeah. if you can't even afford to keep your school functioning, that's the last of your priorities. Mm. But we realize that it's actually such a crucial subject because if you are, no, I think it's just for everyone. You know, we speak about the fourth industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. One of the top three skills is creativity, sure. critical thinking, creative <laughs> thinking. You have to have those skills. So it's not to say you're going to do art just because you have to be an artist. That's not what we're saying at all. But everyone should be engaged in those types of subjects to help them think, help their brains think in a different way. And that was what was lacking in schools. Mm. And so you get to matric, you go into university if you're lucky to afford that. And then it's the first time you're asked to think in a critical way. Um, And if you've been to a public school, I mean, those 94% that didn't have access to that, it's very, very difficult for you to to continue. And especially in the careers of today, um, it's so important to to gain that skill of creative Mm. and critical thinking. Um, And so, yeah, that for me... Yeah, we did so much research into the power of art and the power of creativity to be able to set kids on a new level. And that's why I'm passionate about creativity, but I also was a dancer. So that family that I told you about where my dad knocked on the door, they became really integral in my whole life. So that family had a gym in KZN Mm -hmm. and they had a dance teacher, Kim, and she became basic she's my other she's my other mom Mm -hmm. and so dance was part of my life because of her my whole yeah my whole life do you still dance (laughs) I love to dance (laughs) but I mean since I've got two boys Mm. a five-year-old and a two-year-old almost two-year-old and yeah Mm. since having them I haven't danced much but yeah I think it's something I'll go back into all right. So, um, any other business ventures? I mean, besides um, Makers Valley, are you still um, also doing Room Thirteen? You still venturing into that as well? No, I'm not in, involved in Room Thirteen anymore. So that is still run by TWA, and it's still functioning. And I still, I mean, obviously, I love the program, mm-hmm. and I always check in on how everyone's doing. And it's so cool to see the kids that were part of Room Thirteen. Like, there's one guy that's now part of Artist Proof Studios. So the ones that actually are are really talented at arts if they didn't have that program mm. and to see them now like thriving artists doing an amazing job in the arts industry it's it's beautiful to see but I also work at an organization called the Change Collective Change where we mm-hmm. yeah, do a lot of purpose uh, we help brands be more purpose driven oh that's <laughs> nice dope 
So, um, you know, every time we talk to people that are like in the industry and stuff, um, people always speak about the good stuff about the careers and their achievements and everything. But nobody really focuses on um, like some of the failures mm. that people that people have actually um, faced. So you've got a lot of young black South African women who were just trying to be something of big dreams and um, they just end up being, you know what, they just end up not even making it because um, not a lot of people talk about some of the challenges that you're going to face and how you can potentially overcome them. So what would you say was your biggest failure and how did you overcome it? This is just to, maybe for somebody who's going through the same thing. Mm. What kind of advice would you give them if they're going through like a challenge like that? Sure. There's so many failures. Um and I'm trying to pinpoint one that makes most sense and resonates. But I think like when I started HDI for good, because I've spoken about that before, mm-hmm. it was a new nonprofit and I'm like, yay, brands are going to make a difference, blah, blah, blah. No, it just ended up being, a, again, a tick box exercise. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because we were a new nonprofit and it's the same thing that I'm facing at the Makers Valley at the moment. Mm. If you're a new nonprofit and you don't have two year annual financial statements and you don't have your PBO status and you don't have all of these things, which you can't have when you're new. Um, and sorry, just on a side note, mm-hmm. my biggest frustration and this is why I'm doing the social entrepreneurship course is that nonprofits have, have been, and they're not all of them, but there's a lot. There's thousands of nonprofits in South Africa, and they've become so stale and have done the same thing for people in the same way for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. They haven't thought of ways to differentiate, but mm. also corporates and donors are frustrated because they want they want the sizzle. They want to see things that are actually happening, mm-hmm. and. It's, you know, as a nonprofit, you should your your model should be that you're changing the thing that you're trying to solve, so much so that you don't exist hmm. in ten years time or whatever. You know that should be your aim. But you find these monster nonprofits that have existed for like over hmm. so many years. I'm not saying it's just because of them. I mean, just, we've got such so many failures on so many levels in society. Yeah, that I'm not. You know, that should be your goal and your dream. That you this problem doesn't exist anymore so we as an organization shouldn't exist and that's kind of how I feel so yeah when I started HDI for good I was really trying to be as different as possible which is also not the best thing but I was young and I think yeah I struggled I failed in terms of getting funding because people were just not used to that model and thinking and I failed to keep my team so that was a huge learning for me that team that I had because I was obviously the the one now looking after it was the first time I'm like managing team paying payroll etc etc um I had to eventually retrench them because sure. we didn't have enough mm-hmm. um, to function. And that, for me, I think was the biggest failure and learning that I've ever had because to go through that process of retrenchment and retrenching somebody else that's sitting in front of you to say, listen, this dream that we had, this amazing sure. goal and vision, mm-hmm. it's not working. And you you kind of tell yourself, like, it's going to work, it's going to work, it's going to work. But once you sit and have that conversation with somebody, that's when it's, like, real, that mm. you can't continue. And so, yeah, that, I think, was the biggest 
learning for me, but the way that I didn't realize it at the time, but the way that I kind of got out of that was because people said like, don't give up, mm-hmm. like change, change, take whatever's not worked and change it. And that can sometimes be the downfall of entrepreneurs is that you stick to this model or stick to this thing that you're going to do for way too long. And I, like I said, the retrenchment point was the point where I realized it's not working. Um, but it didn't mean like everything about my vision and goals and the way that I saw brands can make a difference was Mm -hmm. a failure and didn't make sense. So you can get to that point where it's like, if you're failing in business, you think the whole thing is a mess and it's not going to make sense. And I was like, oh, I'm going to find a new job. What am I going to (laughs) do? But actually, yeah, I'm in the same kind of world still to this day Mm. and yeah HDR for good we were able to rethink the way that we engage we started um really looking I mean like I said I didn't want to do that tick boxing exercise but we really started to be um creative in the way that we did that we we are late we are saying like okay this organization needs PE points but how can they create a program that's not just to get the points but also is uplifting black organizations so for example because HR for good was um black um yeah PE really tied into that and we were able to work with SAB and I think they were really really kind of at the forefront you know they work with big advertising agencies mm. like Ogilvy and all of those <laughs> and they had this program then they realized to say hey actually we can empower young new startup agencies and what does that mean so it wasn't just a tick boxing exercise yes it did help them with their mm-hmm. ABE, but at the same time it really empowered these young startup agencies because we got new brands that they were launching and mm. they said like you each get this brand you work on the thinking the creativity behind it and what they found is that because these people are given a chance they respond much more um enthusiastically yeah. than their suppliers who have been on their books for like 15 years i agree <laughs> you know so mm. it was little things like that that I realized, oh my gosh, there are opportunities, but you just have to open your eyes to them and think differently about them. Yeah. And yeah, that's what got us out the hole at uh, HDI for good. And <laughs> so, since then, I've just realized that failures, you know, they kind of also push you in a new direction. And I've, I mean, I'm not saying I'm embracing failures because mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as people say you should, yeah. it is hard and it's very humbling. And I think your pride takes a knock and mm. I've realized like yeah you I'm not, I've never said to myself that I'm an entrepreneur but now I'm doing the social entrepreneurship course and I've realized that entrepreneurs themselves they um they've got this humility that they they'll put everything on the line even if it fails they'll mm. put their name out there because they believe in it so much and I've realized that nonprofits have to do the same. Like, if you believe in this cause so much, you have to put yourself, your, you know, your life on the line, essentially, yeah. <laughs> um, to showcase that this is something that you're really driven and passionate about. Mm-hmm. And then people want to invest in that. They can see if people are, like, super safe and not wanting to, you know, or do they see this passion and drive and commitment. And I think this world of social media, you're seeing business 
people be the face of their business more and more on social media. Like you're seeing their lives, you're seeing their stories, you're seeing their passion because now people are investing in the person and the person makes the brand. And so it's something that's interested me. I'm an introvert, so I'm not, I don't like putting myself out okay. there <laughs> and like saying, hey, look at me, this is my story. Mm. But I realize that people want to hear your story and understand it and connect yes. on an, an emotional level. So, mm. yeah. I don't so, know if I answered your question. So going going to um, the point of entrepreneurship, what what would you say has been your biggest um, sacrifice? So for instance, I've engaged some people, some entrepreneurs, and they were like, you know, the biggest sacrifice I've ever had to make for this organization, for this company to work is I've had to pay people for five years and I didn't even get a single cent from this and I think a lot of people are going into into entrepreneurship because they want the lifestyle but um, there are so many sacrifices that go into that so what would you say has been your biggest one yeah your biggest sacrifice (laughs) so I resonate with the salary thing (laughs) Um, and I think that plays a role but how it impacted me is like my family and so, yeah, this this month, July alone has just been, there's been so many deaths and, oh, it's just been tough. Crazy, hey? <laughs> and I've just realized that, like, this is, I've got my two boys and I think last year, even though we were working from home, my door was always closed. You were on Zoom from like seven to like midnight, you know, and I realized how much, I had sacrificed my family for my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think you go through seasons as an entrepreneur. You know, you can't, you have to make plans to not stay in that kind of season. And so finally I was able to get out. Like last year, I was literally, I think because everything was in such a commotion, you didn't, like, I didn't pause to say, oh, like, what is like, the new (laughs) way forward. I was like hustling hard. I was Mm. doing everything I could. And maybe it was like wrong, but you know, that was just the way I responded. Like things are falling apart. Like how Mm. can I make sure everything is held together? Mm. And you can only do that, you know, like they call it white knuckling. Like your, your, your knuckles are so white because you like grasping onto everything. Mm. And my family went out the window. I was just like hustling hard last year. And at the beginning of this year, I like literally was just like, I can't do that anymore. Mm. Um, and it's not to say that I don't think I should have done that. I, I do think looking back, yo, I, I made a sacrifice that, you know, I won't be able to get those years or time back with my kids. Yeah. But at the same time, would we, we came up with new innovations and we did really cool stuff last year. Um, so like I was saying, like feeding schemes, I hate the ordinary way that people just serve soup out of a bowl. It's so undignified and it's a lot, what a lot of nonprofits do, but I'm not saying it's, it's something that people should stop doing. Like people need access to food. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we started doing in our community is say, Hey, there's community kitchens. Instead of us being like the saviors of the day, there are people in our community that want to cook, they are impoverished themselves. But if we give them the assets, the pots, the pans, the gas stoves, 
the assets to feed their community, they're feeling empowered mm-hmm. and they're serving. So they're no longer just sitting at home, but at the mm-hmm. same time, they actually are using those assets now in a social entrepreneurship way because on Tuesdays and Thursdays, they cook for the community. But on the other days, they use those assets to generate income by going to cook at weddings or you you know whatever no, so it is catering. having a little yeah, yeah okay. business on the side mm-hmm. um so we always looking at ways that instead of just an ordinary feeding scheme how can we you know think about this model in a more sustainable more social mm. entrepreneurship way the other way that we addressing food insecurity in our community is in partnership with a young very creative waste management organization and so they are a young couple that do recycling and if you recycle well basically if you sell those recycled items to buyback centers you get paid but you need to sell in bulk Mm. and so we partnered with them to say well they said if the community recycles and we encourage that everyone brings their bags they get one point if they drop it off at the depot in exchange, it's now digital currency or community currency, we mm-hmm. say, <laughs> for your points, you get to access our swap shop, which is open on a Friday and we have food that's donated to us, but we set it up like nicely as a shop. The maze is there. We've oh, got a partnership dope. with Discam. They give us sanitary uh, pads and all of these things, soap and toothpaste and toothbrushes, etc. And this little community swap shop <clears throat> works on this recycling model. So... The community are active participants because they're recycling, they get, ex- they get points in exchange, and then for their points, they get to shop. And it's mm. a much more dignified, fun, they're choosing items that they actually need for their household, etc. So, nice, I like that. What was I saying? So that's what I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to say that I really, we really try to think out of the box and differently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's kind of just helped us as an organization um survive in COVID because you couldn't just do things the way you always did them Mm -hmm. and so we got a lot of traction like Daily Maverick and and 702 coming to see what was happening like this new way of doing food security and yeah so like I said the sacrifices even though it was hard last year came with the fruit Mm. you know it came with recognition and excitement and it resulted in a little bit more funding um but it's not sustainable (laughs) so what I was doing last year I knew I couldn't continue Mm. and so how do you think of systems and new people that can be empowered um to be able to fill those roles and so I also spent it's sacrificial at the beginning to empower and to help mentor younger people on our team Mm -hmm. to be able to take care of things but now you know that time invested now I'm able to like I'm not at the office today but there's a whole team managing the office and the co-working space and things are running (laughs) and so (laughs) yeah that's what I love is that it does take initial sacrifice but Mm -hmm. you'll see the fruits yeah it all works together um how does one how do people get in touch with with Makers Valley so we, you can go to our website, www.makersvalley.org.za, or you can email us at hello at makersvalley.org.za. Okay. Or you can email me at torbile at makersvalley.org.za. Okay. I think that one is easy. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So um, one last thing. Um, what would you want to be? What would you want people to remember you for? 
like besides all the the stuff that you're doing for the communities mm. and everything but what's the one thing that you really really want people to remember you for like every time this thing comes up people must think tobily <laughs> oh my um oh, i don't know there's so well i think the one thing I was saying um, someone last week is leaving no one behind. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really passionate about that. I want communities, like now we're speaking about how, to, you know, COVID, for example, just showed us how a community couldn't just pivot and do Zooms and digital, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, our community was left behind because we don't have access to those kinds of things. Mm. And everything that I look at is like, how do we improve communities or improve the world? but without leaving people behind. Mm. And so, like, that's what stirs me, I think, yeah, in every aspect in my life, even if it's just in family, if it's at the church that I go to, is that how do we make sure that no one is left on the fringes, but there's this inclusivity and that people are, they belong, Mm. and they're brought with on the journey. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Toby Le. You know, when I heard, okay, you're doing an interview with Toby Le, I was like, okay, who's Toby Le? Okay, I started Googling. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my word. <laughs> what am I going to say to this person? She's done so much. But um, I've really, really enjoyed um, this conversation with you. And I've also just learned so much from you as well. I'm 24. I'm still trying to figure my Amazing. life out as well. And... Um, I'm also very much into social development, Mm. even though I haven't really started acting on it in a way. But um, just hearing you speak about all of these things just kind of reminds me that, listen, this is something you were so into and you just kind of pushed it aside because you wanted to push other things. But um, I really, really, really feel strongly that I should be going back and mm. making a change. This is a beautiful moment. Thank you so much. And make a change <laughs> where you, like, I really believe that the, wherever you are right now, the mm-hmm. skills that you're learning, the, the people that are surrounding you and the people that you surround, mm-hmm. that's where you make the change. And like social development doesn't have to be working for an NGO or working in like volunteering or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it, I think now's the time to find creative ways and new gaps in society to see, you know, how do you use podcasts mm. to make a difference? How do you True. use whatever you're doing and the mm. space that you're in to make a difference? You know, people always think ah, social development, okay, it's just about me going to volunteer at an NGO or me giving away my clothes to somebody mm. and that's it. Okay, <laughs> I've done, I've made a change. Fine, I'm done, I'm relaxing now. I'll wait for the next month when I've got... Uh, extra food or I've got other stuff to give away but you're right use the skills that you have and the people around you to make a change so big ups to you (laughs) big ups to you yeah thank you so much thank you so much Toby thanks for having me we would like to thank you for your time in listening to this podcast as a small and passionate creative agency we get the privilege to do some work with some incredible brands and people and in these challenging times We want to do whatever we can to help others. So, if you run a business, or maybe you do creative work that could benefit from being on our platform, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you, and all of our social media links are in the description of this episode.